Welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Ushin Taylan, and we're here today with İpek Yüner Jora, who currently teaches in the Department of Turkish Language and Literature at Boğaziçi University in Istanbul. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. İpek finished her PhD at the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations at the University of Chicago. Her dissertation titled, The Story Has It, Prose, Gender and Space in the Early Modern Ottoman World, uses fictional prose stories scattered in manuscript collections and questions primarily how different actors and their social and spatial relations were narrated and perceived in Ottoman literary fiction. Her last publication is a book chapter called Gendered Infidels in Fiction. Today we will talk with Ipek on hikaye, literary fiction, in the early modern Ottoman world. We will draw on her expertise on the historiography of literature in the Ottoman Empire. Ottoman literature is heavily associated with verse, namely Ottoman court poetry, divan, and to a small extent, folk literature, halk edebiyatı. Story, however, is a rather unexplored aspect of Ottoman literature. Moreover, these stories open up a window into the social and cultural life of early modern Ottomans, as Ipek does studying the narration of gendered spaces. I really like your dissertation title, The Story Has It. It reattributes the significance stories deserve in historiography. So, to start with, I want to ask you about writing the history of story in the Ottoman Empire. I'm interested in knowing more about historiography favoring poetry over story, and to what extent this is about the acceptance of story as a Western literary genre. This is a rather good and complicated question, actually. It is not possible to say if it is the modern historiography that favors poetry over prose or the Ottomans themselves. The available sources indicate that the poetry was the most appreciated and celebrated source. However, the evidence comes from the biographies of poets. So the source is positively biased towards poetry. However, the sheer volume of prose, and I refer specifically to prose fiction, speaks for its popularity. But when we look at the studies on the Ottoman literature, works on Ottoman prose fiction are considerably fewer than studies on poetry. And because poetry is taken for granted, we do not think much about the different genres and how each genre has its own scope and function and audience. This de facto focus on poetry also serves for the second point you have mentioned, definition of short story as a primarily Western genre. Or to put it more succinctly, taking the realistic and Western short story as the essential archetype and its criteria necessary for any story. Approaching Ottoman short stories from this perspective causes to focus on a limited number of stories that could be ancestors of modern short story and sets all the other stories aside, which are not necessarily realistic. This obsession with realism, fed both by the standards of Western short story definitions as well as historians' general approach towards sources, caused many stories to be left aside or treated as mere fantasies of an Eastern culture. So what has pushed you into working with stories? The stories themselves. My first encounter with close reading of a story was in a reading class led by Hakan Karateke at the University of Chicago, in which Andrea Braun and I have read the story of Anna Bıcı, the story of a woman who turns a rich and successful merchant into a pauper. I then wanted to read more stories, and I worked on Dinani's published story collection for my master's paper. One story has fascinated me, and I wanted to work on stories further. 
May I ask which story that is? Yes, I can even tell you the story. The story has it that a beautiful woman had a lover, but they could not meet because of the husband. So one day she decides for a trick. She invites the lover to a promenade and convinces her husband for an outing. While they were wandering around, she climbs on a tree and starts to yell at her husband, accusing him of bringing a prostitute and having an intercourse with her while she is on top of the tree. The husband, perplexed, wonders if it is the tree. So, when she is down, he climbs up. And while his wife is having sex with her lover, he says, If I were deficient in intellect like you, a feature attributed to women, I would have slandered you, but I know better. So at the end, everyone goes home happily. The moral section of the story chastises the man for his imbecility, and no one is punished. Reading these stories and their likes, I was fascinated by men's self-confidence about themselves and simultaneously their belief in women's wits. We will definitely come back to the issue of gender in these stories, but for the time being, I want to ask you, What is a story? What do you accept as a story in the Ottoman Empire? Is there such thing as an Ottoman or a Turkish story? To me, and many may disagree, any story told by the Ottomans and for the Ottomans are Ottoman stories, because in the pre-modern world, translations and retellings were done in a way that we would call adaptations. Ottomans took the stories in circulation and in the Ottoman terminology, With reference to translations, they dress the stories in Ottoman clothes, be it the details, context, or the morals. So my approach favors a reading that is inclusive of all Ottoman stories. However, I do recognize and refer to other versions in other languages and cultures. So what I'm critical towards is not working on adaptations and versions. I do that my South. What I do not want is to look for the original Ottoman stories and disregard all the other stories that the Ottomans made their own. For instance, the story I've just told has a lot of other versions and Franklin Lewis traced the Persian versions of the story in comparison to Bakoche's and Chaucer's in an article titled One Chaste Muslim Maiden and a Persian in a Pear Tree. Only after reading these versions, one realizes that the Ottomans abbreviated the story and made the woman simply climb on a tree without any reason whatsoever, such as plucking some pears. But this is how it made into Ottoman story collections. And uh, how do you read these stories? I read the stories while acknowledging their fictive and entertaining character, and then I do contextualize the stories. Not to find evidence for daily life, but to get closer to a time in the past in which these stories were narrated and circulated. This contextualization, I believe, helps me to understand how people might have read and perceived the stories. As a methodological approach, I make a gendered reading. I read these stories to trace the relational, intersectional and performative character of gender, or more specifically, how it is narrated and imagined by storytellers. We will continue the conversation after a short music break. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. We are here with İpek Jora discussing fictional narrative stories in the early modern Ottoman world. We have been talking about story in the early modern Ottoman Empire with respect to the history and historiography of literature. 
Your work also contributes to the study of gender in the Ottoman Empire. You study men and women and their positions in society through these fictional narratives. What do stories tell us about men and women and their social roles in the society? The women and men in the stories are rather one-dimensional. The women are witty, devilish and lustful. And men, if not careful, will find their world crumbling if they don't stay away from women and their plots. The wiles and tricks of women do not have any bounds. The men in the stories are anxious. If they are husbands, they are anxious of cheating and plotting wives. If they are merchants, they are anxious of thieves. If they are in mischief, they are anxious of being caught red-handed. But they are always anxious. The sporting characters in the stories are also simple. They are in the story to the extent they have a role in the plot. About different characters' representations and roles in the society, it is not what one may expect before reading the stories. To start with, women are witty and powerful, men are rather idiotic. The characters who are in open mischiefs and debauchery get away with anything. In most stories, the victims, commonly men, are not even aware what has happened as the husband in the story, and the tricksters simply get away with it. I want to open here a parenthesis about my focus on men and women and reconstruction of this heteronormative binary. A significant number of the stories I have used are women's wiles and trickster stories. And possibly because of the specifics of this literary genre, the texts I am dealing with are very heteronormative. They construct a world in which men and women are tricking other men and women using any devices. This is not to say that the early modern Ottoman world was heteronormative, but to underline that the different literary genres may create different pictures. Also, I would like to ask you how you come across these texts. They are scattered and unfortunately, in many cases, they are not properly catalogued. So in catalog entries, you find references such as stories or many catalogs do refer to some stories with their titles, but many tinier titles are skipped. So it requires a search in the manuscript libraries. And with reference to scholarship, especially to the scholarships of earlier decades, when I first started working on this topic, or when I decided to work on this topic, one of the catchphrases that I was looking for in secondary references was no literary value. If a manuscript or a text is labeled as having no literary value, that usually meant that there were women and there was some content that challenges our norms and understandings of be it Ottoman society or gender. So I started digging for content that had no literary value and ended up with all these amazing stories. But this is only the tip of the iceberg. Home, neighborhood, marketplace, these are among places that appear as gendered spaces in your work. I'm interested in hearing how you approach private and public space. It's my understanding that you have a more fluid view of these categories. Yes, in line with the current scholarship, I also do agree that the public and private, or the boundaries between public and private, is porous. And the transgressions happening in these stories show the many different shades of public and private. The stories also show evidence for an awareness of these shades by the protagonists themselves. For instance, women do claim home as their own space when countered by their husbands. Very shortly, gender dictates the access 
and boundaries of the use of spaces, as well as time, and decide what is public and what is private and when. Would you like to give us an example of a story? Of course. I love storytelling, as known to many. So a story that I gave the title, The Chalabi in the Closet. One day, a woman sees through the enclosed balcony a young and very good-looking gentleman, a Chalabi. Becoming inclined to him, she invites him inside. After a very intimate first encounter, the couple continues to enjoy themselves with food, drink and music, accompanied by the female slaves at home. While they enjoy themselves, the woman asks the Chalabi about the contents of his junk his notebook, especially whether it contains women's wiles stories. The Cherebi asks rhetorically what is women's wiles, implying its significance that is worth to be recorded. He laughs. The woman, in response, says that he is yet just a boy, not yet acquainted with the wiles of women. The party is suddenly interrupted by the unexpected arrival of the husband. The woman immediately hides the Cherebi in the closet, and then she chastises her husband for his unannounced arrival, saying, and I quote her, you pretend that any time is well and come home at all sorts of time. That is why I am sorrowful. Her husband asks in response, if a man enters his own home by permission, she confirms, and I quote her again, yes, it is necessary. Women rule inside the home and its outside is at man's disposal. She then continues to bicker about his arrival and how he has interrupted her privacy with the Chalabi she has invited. With her description of the Chalibi's beauty and of their intimacy before his arrival, the woman makes her husband impossibly angry. When he has heard enough, he threatens to kill them both with the sword hanging on the wall, whereupon she claims to have been intentionally guarding him with the story in order to win a bet. Only then do the readers learn that the couple had a long-standing bet and the first one to successfully trick the other will win a garden. The husband, infuriated at the loss of both the bet and the garden, leaves. When they are alone again, the woman opens the closet to free the Chalibi, who is very much afraid, and not much himself anymore. Having already repented while stuck in the closet, he rejects all the women's advances, begs her to let him leave, and even cries. The woman, disappointed by this weak demeanor, lets him go, saying, You are not a human. Before he leaves, she asks the Chalibi again if the wiles of women are worth writing about. He responds that they even deserve their own book. This story is an apt one to quote about the use of public space and space is an organizational principle because we see that she challenges her husband openly because of interrupting daytime, her time at home. So men are never in the house during the day? No, men are absent or to put it more correctly, husbands are absent during daytime as the husband in the story exemplifies. When they come home during daytime, Commonly being anxious about what is going on at home, and other stories are clearer about this, their presence requires an excuse. For instance, in this story, she again openly challenges her husband that he is interrupting her time and her pleasures. The home as a meeting spot for lovers during the absence of the husbands is a very repetitive plot. Women are locked in the houses. For instance, in the story I just told, I didn't mention that detail, but in this story we are openly explained that she is locked in, but she managed to get the key. So he, she has 
her own set of keys so that she can make this transgression. So in general, in most of the stories, women are locked in the houses, but they make the house their own space by transgressing the locked doors, very rarely with the keys. This is the only one the woman has the key, actually, that I've seen. And they invite their lovers. In some stories, some women are motivated by the feeling of a revenge to a husband who locks the door. So, in these instances, the stories portray home as a woman's place, not because they are locked in or they are imprisoned, but through their illicit performances, women render home their own space. And also you mention a male anxiety in the house. What do you make of this appealing situation? Men are anxious, but how to read the stories is the key to understanding this anxiety. And I want to emphasize here that my reading is one among the many possible. So it is possible to read these stories as subversive texts in which women have all the power via their performances. For instance, saying that the women were locked in but always find a way out would be a subversive rendering of the story. When we do read the stories as such, we can attribute a significant power and agency to Ottoman women or their representations in fiction and thus challenge several stereotypes towards Ottoman women. Another possible reading would be a celebration of poetic justice, saying that these stories provide a safety wall for the underrepresented in the story, namely women. That would be saying the women were locked in and these stories created a space for them to breathe and to mock their imprisoned position. Yet another possibility would be reading these stories as men's fantasies about women's desires or their insatiable desires and a reflection of their constant anxieties about women and their use of space. So what were women doing at home while they were absent? All these readings or their combinations are possible and show us the complexity of gendered readings of fiction. Uh, I remember that you asked in your work if the Ottomans believed in their stories. So I'd like to ask you, did they or is this even a valid question? Yes. I mean, I don't think that all husbands thought that their wives were entertaining lovers when they were absent. But I do ask this question as a provocative question with reference to Paul Wayne's Did the Greeks believe in their myths? especially with regard to another set of Ottoman stories that are set in the faraway lands. This question becomes very interesting and comparable to the question of myths. But when I go back to the belief part of the question, I actually do not have an answer, but I believe in the importance of asking it to challenge the emphasis on the realism and moral of the stories. I believe in the attempt to make literature a legitimate source of history. Scholarship focuses simply on realistic features and morals of the story. Thus, we tend to forget that the Ottomans read and enjoyed these stories, and we also should do so. Looking for evidence of daily life to think about material aspects of social history or stripping all stories into repetitive plots are valid approaches but leaves us with a rather dull image of Ottoman fiction. Instead, I think we should appreciate the stories as fiction primarily and get confused by them. I often get confused by the stories and their morals, and I do not know if I should believe in them. 
I think the same was valid for the Ottoman audiences. Robert Darnton, the famous cultural historian of the early modern Europe, argues that we are onto something when we cannot grasp something, a saying, a joke, a proverb. This, what he calls opaque evidences, may lead us to different and curious worldviews. The more the Ottoman stories surprise and shock us, the more we are confused about their plots and morals, the closer we are to the world of the Ottoman authors, readers, narrators and audience. We should never forget our temporal and spatial distance from the stories, though, and that they were fiction that the Ottomans have enjoyed. There's much more to discuss, but that's all the time we have today. Ipek, I want to thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. I really enjoyed being here. Thank you so much. For those of you who want to find out more, we'll post a bibliography of relevant works on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. That's all for today. Until next time, take care. Gözleri mahmur Katip benim ben